Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Good morning. My name is Leanne, and today's scripture is Matthew 5, 27 through 32. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leanne. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for that. As we continue on our study of Matthew, uh, we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, Matthew's main emphasis has been on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and that is where God is. That's where God's reign is, his presence is, that's where his holiness is, and that's where we want to be. Matthew's divided into five different movements. We're in the first one. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is where basically Jesus is taking his disciples away and he's sitting down and he's discipling his disciples. He sat them down in the Beatitudes and he said, this is what it looks like to be in me. This is what it looks like to be one of my followers. You're complete and you're happy and you're lacking nothing, no matter what the circumstances of life, you are blessed. And then he comes out of that and he starts to specifically talk about some of these topics. And his goal in doing that isn't to fully develop some theology of all of these things, but rather to lift his disciples' eyes up to what the heart of God is as it relates to these things. Last week we looked at uh, murder and how that Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that it's not just the act of murder, but it's the heart. As a disciple of Jesus, we've been given a heart of flesh, but that heart of flesh needs to be molded and shaped to look more like God. And so Jesus is wanting his disciples to uh, grow in their knowledge and their understanding and in their joy, because that's what he wants for us. And so we, we come into Matthew chapter 5, we look at these two topics this morning, and they look a little daunting, adultery and divorce. It's scary. It's like, oh, we don't want to talk about those things. They're uncomfortable. But when we understand them in the context in which the teaching is happening, it, it, it turns it on its head, and it can become a very joyful thing. So last week, as uh, Parker was getting started, he, he talked about this process of discipleship and how that when we come to Christ, we're excited, but our focus is primarily on not sinning, right? 
It's on, don't sin, don't sin. You get up in the morning and say, okay, okay, I'm not going to sin today. I'm not going to do that today. And at the end of the day, uh, why did I sin? And our focus is largely on sin and, and trying to eradicate that. And that's kind of the frustrating side of the discipleship process. But the good news is we don't stay there. We go from that to the other side of greater righteousness. And that's what Jesus is doing here for his disciples He's wanting to take them from where they are with their rudimentary understanding of what he's been teaching them. He says, come on, guys, you don't have to stay here. I want you to enjoy fully what I have for you, which is greater righteousness. And let's start doing that. And, you know, for us, that can be a daunting thing because we know that we're, we're living in a sinful world and we know ourselves and we know that we're sinful. Sometimes we wish, don't we? At least I do that I could just say to God, God, I'm here. Fill me up and make me like you are. Just do it. I know you can do it. Am I alone in that? (laughs) And yet that's not the way it works. God in his wisdom has instructed us. We know even in the book of Matthew in chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? I think a lot of times what we want is to maintain control of our life and add Jesus to it, right? I like the the good Jesus feelings when I go to church and sing the songs and see the people. I like reading the Bible because it's inspirational, it makes me feel better, but when it comes down to the reality of what's going to happen in my life today, tomorrow, and next year, I'd like to be in control of that shit, right? I don't want to lay that one down. And yet Jesus said, if you want to follow me, this is what it's going to look like. Becoming like Jesus is not automatic. It takes a daily surrendering of our will to his. And getting up in the morning and saying, okay, God, what do you want to do today? Now, the good news is sometimes our will and God's will are the same thing. That happened to me this morning. God, what do you want me to do? He says, I want you to go to AGC and gather with my people. Guess what? That's what I wanted to do too. That's awesome when that happens because it's easy. But there are a lot of times when it's not like that, probably most of the time when it's not like that, when I say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? I want you to forgive this person and I want you to do that. And when somebody does something evil against you, I don't want you to return it with evil. Well, when somebody cheats and lies and steals against me, everything that's in me wants to make that right and get back at them, right? And yet, what does God's word say? God says that in Romans chapter 12, he says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what God wants. So am I going to submit what I want to what God wants? So there are two parts of really becoming a disciple. Part of it is volitionally giving up control, but the other part is knowing what it is that God wants. It's not intuitive for us to know what God wants. 
Sometimes I think that we think, well, God thinks like I think, so if I think that this is the way I should handle this, that must be the way that it's supposed to be handled. And that's not the case at all. We have to go to his word and seek to know what it is that he has revealed to us is his will. And that's what he's doing with his disciples here. But it seems like in this life, even with the best of intentions, evil wants to drag us down, doesn't it? I mean, it's true that Satan is, you know, running around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us and doing all these things, and he is having tremendous success in our culture and all of that. He wants to drag us down. It, it reminds me of an old, old, old book. Go back to the fifth century, The City of God. Anybody hear of the book, The City of God? Okay, this is, thank you. <laughs> you read it in seminary too, didn't you? <laughs> The City of God was written by a guy named St. Augustine or Augustine, if you want to sound smart. And it's about the city of God and the, or the, yeah, the city of God and the city of earth. And it talks about the city of God against the pagans is a full name. But he talks about the pagans in the, the city of earth. And what he says about the pagans is that they have delivered unto mankind nothing but a hissing cauldron of lusts that have so spoiled our souls and driven us far from God. The city of earth is inhabited of people that have immersed themselves in the cares and pleasures of this present passing world. Those are the, the people of the earth, whereas the people that inhabit the city of God are people who forego earthly pleasure to dedicate themselves to the eternal truths of God now revealed in the Christian faith. And so this isn't new what we struggle with. What Augustine was saying was that our goal in life is to put our focus on the things and the truths of God, not on the craziness of life. That is what we're supposed to be doing. And as Jesus is, is teaching his disciples here, this is what he's trying to do. Matthew in his book is trying to raise our vision up to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is trying to explain to his disciples what is the heart of God. So we have a choice this morning. What kind of people ought we to be? Are we going to be the people that forego earthly pleasure to dedicate ourselves to the eternal truths of God? Or are we going to be the people that are immersed in the cares and pleasures of this present passing world. We have that choice, don't we? Every day we have that choice. Every seeming minute of every day we have that choice. And hopefully we are going to, as a result of having studied God's word throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, be more encouraged to have our vision lifted up, to see God and to enjoy him. Jesus offers us a greater righteousness a beautiful holiness to dedicate our attention to. And that is real. The 19th century poet William Blake wrote it this way, we become what we behold. What are we beholding? Colossians chapter three, set your affection on things above, not on things on this earth. Are we setting our focus, setting our mind, setting our thoughts on the things of God? I love the old hymn, Sang it since I was a little kid. Well, I probably haven't sang it in 
Well, that's neither here nor there. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, when we do that, when we set our affection on him, it changes everything. And that's when we can start moving down that continuum from don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, to living in the, the basking in the glory of the righteousness of God and enjoying the fullness of everything that God has created us to be. You know, we do still live in this world and we are sometimes conditioned to think that because we do, the greater righteousness is impossible. I'm a sinner, the world's full of sin, there's craziness everywhere, there's no way that this can happen. And hear me if you don't hear anything else this morning. That is a lie. Don't buy that. Because it's not dependent on your efforts. God has already gifted it to you. And God has made a way for that to be a reality to you. And it isn't like God didn't know the world that you're living in or the weaknesses that you have. He did. And he said, even still, this is possible for you. Not only possible, but this is what I want for you. And this is what you should be striving for. You know, I was thinking too, Parker said last week, a phrase that I think really bears us repeating this morning when we're thinking about how do I transform from where I am to where God wants me to be. He used the phrase, the expulsive power of new affection. And he kind of went quickly over that and I said, let's, let's camp on that for just a minute. The expulsive power of a new affection. I'm thinking, okay, well, how do we illustrate that? And I got to thinking, it wasn't too long ago, I saw something called a floating dry dock. I don't know if you've ever heard of a floating dry dock, but dry dock is where ships go to be worked on. And there's a floating dry dock that's just, and we've got a, there we go, it looks like that. It looks kind of like a car ferry, right? There's nothing too impressive about it. And if I said to you, let's, let's put an aircraft carrier on the top of that, you would say, well, that's impossible. Until the slide shows up and you can see it's possible. What happens is that dry dock has ballast tanks that they flood with water and it sinks down low enough so that that aircraft carrier can come over the top of it and then they force air into those tanks and it expels all of the water and the buoyancy lifts it up and the power of that is strong enough to lift that aircraft carrier out of the water, something that you would think would be impossible. That's the expulsive power of air. Imagine the expulsive power of a new affection, of righteousness is what we're talking about. And what that can do, those sins that we struggle with, the things that are nagging at us, the doubts, the fear, all of those things can be eradicated from our lives through the righteousness of God. And that's what Jesus knows, and that's why he's wanting to train his disciples in this. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 27 through 32. We're going to be looking at adultery and divorce. And uh, as we do that, we're going to be considering uh, four different angles. First of all, from where the teaching came. I put the preposition in the front for you English people. 
how the disciples understood each teaching, how Jesus clarified each teaching, and then the consequences of disobedience. And then after that, after we've looked at both of those, we're gonna come back and consider the power within every believer to overcome sin. So let's start at verse 27 of Matthew chapter five. It says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Stop there. So that's pretty straightforward. That's what it says. Do not commit adultery. But where did the teaching come from? Came from one of the big 10, right? The 10 commandments. It's number seven of the big 10. If you've ever wondered, where do you find the 10 commandments? Well, you know, there are 10 commandments. The second book of the Bible is Exodus. If Second book times 10 is 20, Exodus 20, that's where you go to find the Ten Commandments. That's free. You're not even going to charge for that. So we go and we find right there in the Ten Commandments, it says, do not commit adultery. It's also in Deuteronomy 5.13. So the disciples obviously knew this teaching, but what did the disciples understand adultery to be? In the Old Testament, under the law, it was the physical act of a married person having sex with another married person. It was pretty straightforward. That's how it was defined. And that's what they would have understood it to be. And Jesus knew that. And that's why Jesus went on to say in verse 28, but I tell you, everyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. So he's saying, you have understood it just to be the act, but I want you to know how God sees it. I want you to know the truth, the full truth of what is being talked about here. He says, it is sin if you look lustfully, if you not just see, because it's not a sin to see a beautiful person and say that person is stunning, that's fine. But then if you continue to, to think and to dwell and to lust, it becomes sin at that point. Because then that, that lustful thinking turns into covetousness and thinking, how can I get to know that person? And then the covetousness leads to actions which leads to the act. And Jesus is saying, way back here in the beginning, when you started thinking wrongly, that was sin. That was the same as the act itself in the eyes of God. God so loves people that he will not tolerate people being mistreated, even if it's just a mental uh, object, objectification of who they are. That is sin. You can see Jesus is raising their eyes up. It's not just down here. God's vision is up here. He says, I want you to know that this is how much God loves people. You remember later in Matthew, he says, they, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love, the, love your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we get love God, love others. That's this. It's not loving to objectify somebody for my own selfish reasons. And so Jesus is lifting their eyes up. He's helping them to see where God's heart is as it relates to adultery. There was a 
1800s, there was a Hebrew scholar that put it this way. He said, the eye and the heart are the two brokers of sin. Passions lodge, passions lodge only in him who sees. It's the eye and the heart. That's where it starts. It starts with the eye and the heart. It doesn't happen if we don't loosely use our eyes and our hearts and allow these things to come into our life. We need to guard our eyes and guard our heart. Uh, I've probably said it over and over here. You know, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. The heart is what God is concerned about because out of it, everything flows. And so we are to take seriously what we look at, what we think about. So thinking about the consequences of adultery here, in verses 29 and 30, he goes on to say, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. That's pretty gruesome language. Cutting off hands and poking out eyes, I mean, that's pretty gruesome. And is that what God wants for us? I mean, does he want us to maim ourselves and do all that thing? Well, no, but he does want us to understand the seriousness of what it is because the disciples knew, according to the law, what the penalty for adultery was. The penalty for adultery in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, says, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. That's serious. Deuteronomy 22, 22 says, if a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. So the penalty for adultery is very sin, very, very seriously, very serious. But Jesus, we already know, said, if you're committing adultery, you're doing that in your mind and in your heart. So you need to do away with whatever's causing that to happen. And I, I love the word that's used there. Anything that causes you to sin, the word there is what we get the word scandalize or scandal from. Anything that scandalizes you should be eradicated. It should be done away with. That word is used a couple of more times. It's used in Matthew 13, 41. It says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin, who scandalize, and those, law, those guilty of lawlessness. Matthew 18, 6 and 7 says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, to be scandalized, it would be better for him that a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. Scandalization. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you have got to take your thought life and, the, and your heart seriously. You need to take drastic 
uh, measures to change your behavior so that these things do not take root in your life to the extreme that if you had to pluck your eyes out so that you wouldn't be looking, if you can't get victory, you need to do that. Now, we know that God gives us victory through the Spirit, so we don't need to do that. But there are things that we allow in our lives that scandalize us, that draw our attention down to sin and away from God. What are those things that are in our life that need to be cut off, that need to be plucked out and need to be thrown away? What are the things that are in our lives that are causing our vision to be taken away from God? As I'm saying that, I know you're sitting there thinking, you know, what it could be. It could be, could be Netflix. You may have a Netflix uh, you know, problem. It could be your smartphone. It could be your computer. It could be your music. It could be your friends. It could be, could be a million things. And for each of us, it's going to be something different. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples and what he's saying to us this morning is we need to take that seriously, those things that would seek to scandalize us and draw our attention away from God and seek to draw our attention down to this, this world, down to sin and frustrate us and demoralize us and Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't let that happen. Take whatever measures need to be taken so that that doesn't happen. This is not what God has for you. God has for you purity and holiness and greatness, not this. And anything that would seek to drag you down needs to be thrown away. I don't know about you, but that's more than a little convicting. I feel like I need to go home and take an inventory because I think that we all have blind spots in those areas. We've become accustomed to not taking seriously those little things that draw our attention away from God, those little things in our life that get a, a root in our heart that said if it came push came to shove, I would probably rather do this than what God wants me to do. Ah, that's not that big of a deal. So we need to take seriously because Jesus, in his language with his disciples, is saying, this is how serious this is. Anything that would seek to scandalize you and draw your attention away from God needs to be dealt with and dealt with seriously and dealt with immediately. So let's move on then to verse 31. Verse 31, talking about divorce, it says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's just start off by understanding, again, this is not a full treatment of what divorce should be, could be, can be, would be, what's, what's okay, what's not okay. That's not his point here. And what this is not about is shaming anybody for anything. What Jesus is doing here is what he did in the adultery section, which is he is lifting up what is the ideal that God created marriage for. What God intended to be a blessing 
a life-giving blessing to us. And he wants his disciples to clearly see that. Again, their vision is being brought up to him. And that's why he wanted to bring this up to them. Now, where did this teaching come from? Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Seems like a troublingly ambiguous statement to me. This is the only, by the way, this is the only mention of divorce in the Pentateuch, okay? So, it's important for us to know how the disciples understood divorce. And there were three primary schools of thought as it relates to divorce uh, in their time. The first one was the Hillel school of thought, which is the most permissive which is akin to no-fault divorce, basically. I mean, if your wife burnt dinner, you could divorce her. I mean, basically, any reason you want to, you can divorce. The second school is kind of the middle of the road, the Akiva school, in which this school of thought is, it's important for you to, to be honorable with your wife and to be good to her and treat her. However, and this is crazy, and I'm just the messenger, if you find a more beautiful woman that's willing to marry you, go for it. Makes no sense. The most restrictive school of thought was the Shammai school of thought, and that's the one that would say only on the grounds of shameful, indecent behavior, short of adultery. You say, well, why short of adultery? Well, someone's caught in adultery the penalty for that is execution. No need for divorce in that case, okay? So the, the disciples are sitting there, they're very well aware of these different schools of thought as it relates to divorce and who holds them and all of this, but Jesus wanted to clarify for them about God's view of divorce in 28, or no, in uh, in. Actually, we'll go to Matthew chapter 19 in verse 4. It says, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created him in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh, so there's no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts, but it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It's interesting how they were flipping the language on Jesus there. And they were saying, Moses commanded, he said, no. He permitted because of the hardness of the, your heart. But God's plan for marriage is permanence, okay? He says, let no one separate what God has put together. God's ideal for marriage is one man, one woman for life. That is his ideal. That is what he created, and that's what he wants. That is the ideal, and that's what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. 
Not only is it permanent, but it's intimate. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, where it says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is a relationship like no other relationship we have. The husband and wife relationship is unique in its intimacy that way. And that's the way that God created it, and that's the way that God intended it to be, and it is a beautiful thing. Permanence and intimate is the way that God created it to be. And he wanted to make sure that his disciples understood that's the way God wants it to be, okay? So that is the upfront teaching of the way God wants it to be. Now, we all know that we live in this sinful world and there are imperfect sinful people and things happen and that's why there was a combination that was made. And the good news this morning is that this passage isn't there to shame anyone and it isn't there to condemn anyone. And God's loving forgiveness is eager. There's no shame in him and there's no shame in this room because there is nobody here that's perfect. There's nobody here that has never sinned in any way. There's nobody here that hasn't enjoyed the undeserved forgiveness of God. And there's nothing like that. When you know that you've, you've messed things up, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in a business or whether it's in some other, and then to have God say, I love you. I never expected you to be perfect and I forgive you. So what we're doing here is we're simply looking at what Jesus was doing with his disciples. And with his disciples, he says, I know that you have all of these other teachings and all of this other stuff going on and, and there's sin in the world and there's a messed up world, but I want you, my disciples, to know unequivocally what my heart is for marriage and this is what it is. I want to raise your vision up to God because that's what God wants for us. But just know when we fall short, and we do, God's loving forgiveness is always there for us, for every one of us. And so as we're sitting here in this room, I know that there are probably people that have struggled with the divorce, with the adultery, with lust, with all of this different stuff, and hear me, that God loves you, and so do we. There isn't any finger pointing, there isn't any shaming, there isn't any anything, there is forgiveness. And we can embrace that forgiveness and we can look to the ideal of what God is. We can raise our vision up to see him. We can make the adjustments that we need to make in our life so that we can become more like him. And that's the purpose that Jesus is going through all of these little teaching vignettes here in the Sermon on the Mount with his disciples so that they can make the adjustments in their life and in their thinking, and in their behavior so that they can become more like him. We are getting to sit on the sideline and watch Jesus disciple his disciples. And we get to benefit from that. It's amazing. God wants to meet us where we are. We know that you know, divorce comes with consequences. We, we don't hear a lot about the consequences of divorce in this passage, but we know that in our lives, divorce has consequences. And it, it's a hard, difficult thing. And just, again, I want to tell you that while we're talking about what God's ideal is, 
nobody in this room is perfect and nobody is shaming anyone and you are loved by God and by us and that uh, someday, Lord willing, we get to see him. But the good news is, even if you're divorced, even if you've fallen to adultery, even if you've struggled with lust, you can make adjustments in your life and you can continue to keep your eyes focused on Jesus and you can keep discipling and becoming a disciple and you can get to the point where you enjoy the greater righteousness. You do not have a scarlet letter on you. Satan would want you to think that and that is a lie. Jesus is saying, I love you and I want you to be, look at the people he was discipling. They were a ragtag group of messed up people that even after this went and messed up, and he knew that they would. He doesn't expect you to be perfect. He doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he loves you. And I love the fact that he is taking the time to walk issue by issue with his disciples through this Sermon on the Mount because he loves them and he cares that they think rightly about these things, that they fully understand what the heart of the Lord is. These are hard subjects to think about. I go back to this expulsive power of a new affection. And I think about the floating dock illustration, but there's also another dead old theologian that said, shall we say that he was tempted in all points as we are, you've heard the voice, or the verse that says Jesus was tempted in all ways like we are, yet without sin. He goes on to say, but desire was expelled by the mighty power of pure love to which every woman was a daughter, a sister, a betrothed, the sacred object of tender respect. That's power. You think about the sin that you're struggling with or the sins that you're struggling with, and you think, I can't, get, I can't get over this, I can't beat this thing. It's, it's this power that when those temptations came on Jesus, he was so full with absolute pure love that they bounced right off. So rather than just focusing in our attention on don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, we need to be focusing on our attention and surrendering and receiving the perfect love of God so that the effectiveness of all of these temptations start to just bounce off. And you know what? They will. I'm not saying that you're ever going to be Jesus. I'm never going to be Jesus, but we can be everything that God intended us to be, and we can be full of the greater righteousness that he has for us. And that's why he's going through these these trainings with these guys. That's why he wants them to understand You're going to make mistakes. But when you make a mistake, you make an adjustment and you look to God and you move in that direction. There's a young person that's close to me that had accumulated a nice little sum of money. And I said to this young person, you should take some of that and save it, invest it, and use it. Don't spend it all frivolously. Unfortunately, that young person did not heed my advice. And shortly, all of it was gone. Well, from that point forward, this young person has said to me, you know, I regret the choices that I made. That was awful. I should have listened to you. 
But since then, that person has made adjustments, changed thinking, and is now a very responsible money manager and has changed their life much for the better because they learned from the mistake. It reminds me of James chapter 1. It says, consider it great joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you are experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing, full of the greater righteousness. When we fail, when we fall, when we find ourselves in a trial, we can count it as joy because we know that God is helping us to learn something that we can adjust, change, and focus on him and grow closer to him and be more like him. Instead of being discouraged and distraught and depressed because we failed, we look at that failure and say, okay, God, where are you in this and where do I go from here? And we move down along that continuum as we continue to have our focus set on him and make the adjustments that we need to make and learn from him in his word. So this morning, there are three questions that I want to leave us with. The first one is positive. In what way, in what ways does your life reflect the greater righteousness of Jesus as it relates to lust, adultery, covetousness, and divorce? In what way are you on the right track? Have you seen growth? You were here, now you are here and you're moving toward the ideal that God has for you. In what ways is that happening? Because I want you to celebrate that. And then the other side of that is, in what ways does your life not reflect the greater righteousness of Jesus as it relates to lust, adultery, covetousness, and divorce? In what ways are you struggling now? Identify specific scandalous influences in your life. Those influences to seek to drag your vision down away from God, what are those? Name them. It's not just, oh, well, I just, you know, I am who I am. No. What scandalous influences are seeking to draw your attention away from God? And then the third thing is, what adjustments are you willing to make in your life to more fully pursue and enjoy the greater righteousness of Jesus? As you identify those scandalous influences, what adjustments need to be made and are you willing to make? And this can be the day that you start making some of those adjustments that you say, you know what, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but this, this is one of those scandalous things that really makes me not want to read my Bible. It makes me really not want to pray. It makes me really not want to be in community with other people that are going to get up in my business. Maybe that's one of those scandalous influences that I need to cut and throw away from me. So let's be thinking about those things. Let's pray over those things. In a minute, I'm going to pray. And uh, after I'm done praying, we're going to have just a few minutes of silence. And during that silence, I want you to think about the things in your life that have been going well and celebrate those. And I want you to, 
identify those things that need to be addressed. And after you've had a few minutes to pray, Parker's going to come up and then he's going to lead us in communion. So let's pray together. Lord, you are a great God. You are a beautiful and a holy God. You are everything that there is to be desired. There is nothing like you. And yet we do have these scandalous influences that seek to draw our attention away from you, that seek to make us think in ways other than the way that you think. I pray that you would help us to be able to um, spend more time in your word seeking to understand the way that you think and give us the volitional strength to be able to lay our lives down and to be able to identify those scandalous things that would seek to pull us away from you. I'm just so thankful for your forgiveness. There's so many times that you could have thrown me away and yet in love you didn't. There's so many times when your patience could have run out and you could have said, I'm done with you. And you didn't. You still want what's best. So I just pray this morning for all of us in this room, Lord, that you would help us to be able to identify those scandalous influences that would seek to draw us away from you. Help us to be able to identify them and then give us the strength to rid them from our lives so that we can be more successful in moving toward you and being like you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at com, or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.